Hi, everyone, and welcome to the final main episode of season one of Every Day is Groundhog Day, except for the days when it's not. The one and only podcast devoted to the holiday, Groundhog Day. I'm your host, Michael, and if you're listening to this on the day it gets released, it is finally Groundhog Day. I hope you're all excited. I know I am. When this podcast drops, I'm probably on my way to one Groundhog Day celebration or another, but as of recording time, I haven't figured out where. You can be sure, however, that I'll be posting updates on countdown to groundhogday.com and social media about where I end up going. One other thing I wanted to mention is that I recently spoke to Stephanie Farr from the Philadelphia Inquirer about Groundhog Day and many of the different forecasters who provide predictions during the Groundhog Day season. It was real fun talking to her, and the article is out now. I'll provide a link in the show notes. Now on to today's episode. For your Groundhog Day listening pleasure, on today's podcast, we have an interview with Dr. William Donner, who is an expert on Groundhog Lodges and wrote a book about them that was released a few years back called Groundhog Lodges, Versamling, and Pennsylvania German Heritage. I talked a little bit about Groundhog Lodges in the first episode of this show. Groundhog Lodges have been around since the mid-1930s and are one of the ways that Pennsylvania Germans have attempted to keep their language and traditions alive. For most of their history, the Groundhog Lodge meetings were strictly in Pennsylvania German, with anyone who spoke in English being forced to pay a fine. At some lodges in recent years, that has been changing, and some portions of the program are now in English. They've also traditionally been men-only, But as we'll discuss in the interview, that's maybe beginning to change as well. So without further ado, here's the interview with Dr. Donner. Enjoy! Today, I'm here with Dr. William Donner, Freiberger Professor of Pennsylvania German Studies at Kutztown University. Dr. Donner wrote the book Groundhog Lodges, Versumling, and Pennsylvania German Heritage. Welcome, Dr. Donner. Thanks for speaking with me today. Thanks for inviting me. So I just read the book and I found it very insightful because Groundhog Lodges are a part of Groundhog Day that I was aware of, but I wasn't entirely sure how they fit into everything because there doesn't seem to be all that much information about them online. So the book really helped fill in some gaps in my knowledge. And I just saw that you've also established a website where you've collected videos and articles. So that will probably help me as well. Is that something that you've been maintaining for a while? Or did you start that around the time that you wrote the book? That uh, website actually came with a sabbatical. You know, they give us the professors every once in a while, a uh, year off or so. And so I had recordings that other people had done. And I also had some recordings that I had done. And there are a variety of different topics. But I do have some recordings of the actual Groundhog Lodge meetings. And then there's a technical difference here. Every Groundhog Lodge meeting is actually a fasumling, which is the the Pennsylvania Dutch word for gathering or coming together. But if you're talking to a Dutchman and he uses the word for summling, oftentimes he talks about events where men and women come together. The Groundhog Lodges, it's only men. And they don't really celebrate the Groundhog Lodge, but they do speak in Pennsylvania Dutch. They have the organization of the meeting is pretty similar to a Groundhog Lodge meeting. Everything's in Pennsylvania Dutch. There's usually a skit, some songs, good food, and then also some kind of special speech. And so I have some recordings of the Fasumling, the Groundhog Lodges, and then I have a lot of other materials too on that website that I've been collecting, I would say, since about Oh, maybe 2010. And then I put them up, uh, it was 2020 that I got the sabbatical. Uh, there's some uh, events that are kind of cool from the Kutztown Folk Festival. And then I have some recordings in both English and Dutch of a very popular speaker at the Fasumling, and that's Clarence Ron. And people might be interested in his talks, both in Pennsylvania Dutch. And if you don't know Pennsylvania Dutch, I think I have about 30 or 40 of his talks that were in English. So I'm proud of the website. It, I think it's a, a good reservoir source of uh, information about Pennsylvania Germans, not only their groundhogs, lodges, and fasumlings, but other aspects of their culture and expression of their culture as well. Yeah, it sounds like a really good resource. I haven't had a chance to look into it too much, but I definitely plan on spending some time looking through it. I haven't had an opportunity to go to a, a groundhog lodge so far. So the groundhog lodges, are they primarily held 
on Groundhog Day only or around that time, or are they held throughout the year? Well, the Groundhog Lodge meetings are generally in the spring. Now, the first Groundhog Lodge that was formed, first Pennsylvania Dutch Groundhog Lodge. Now, as you probably know, there were actually earlier Groundhog Lodges at Punxsutawney and in Lancaster. Those are English ones. Uh, This is a Pennsylvania, this is a Groundhog Lodge that's only in Pennsylvania Dutch. And the first meeting was on February 2nd, 1934, in a town called Northampton. Uh, which is about 15 or 20 miles north of Allentown. And it was men only, and there was a lot of celebration of the alleged ability of the groundhog to be able to foretell whether spring was going to be soon or whether it was going to be a while. It really took off. The Pennsylvania Germans really loved it. Now, that particular lodge always meets on February 2nd. But what happened was a lot of other people said, hey, this is cool, let's do it. And so you had other lodges forming throughout uh, southeastern Pennsylvania. And eventually it got up to, it was over 18, but there were that were kind of officially recognized. One of the more interesting ones was actually down at Temple University in Philadelphia. What had happened was you had a lot of people from the Berks County. I don't know if your audience knows this. Berks County, Lehigh County tends to be the center of these kinds of activities, not only Groundhog Lodges, but other Pennsylvania German activities. And they were professors down at Temple University. They heard about this thing going on and it moved to Allentown and they thought it was really cool. And so they started down there at Temple. Now, eventually you had 18 lodges and actually there was one, I'm not even counting down in, I think it was at Delaware State. Again, people from this area going to teach at Delaware State. And they thought, hey, that'd be really cool to have a, a meeting where we can only speak in, where we only speak Pennsylvania Dutch. Anyway, those other lodges would pick different days, usually sometime in the spring, sometimes in January, maybe. Maybe sometimes maybe in, I don't know, uh, later in February. February 2nd kind of always belonged to that first lodge that was formed in, it was set up in Allentown, the first meeting in Northampton, then it went back to Allentown. Then I think it was about, you know, I'd have to look at my book, but 36 or 37, uh, some people were going to the Groundhog Lodges. Groundhog Lodges are for men only. They're really kind of spinoffs of Masonic Lodges, uh, the kind of male-centered brotherhoods that were very popular in this area. I'd say, you know, from about 1880 to 1890 till maybe after World War II. You had men belonging to you know, Oddfellows and Eagles and all sorts of lodges. Anyway, somebody came from a Groundhog Lodge meeting and said, you know, we really should have women. And so I think it was about 1936 or so, Berks County had its first fasomaling, which included both men and women. Uh, there wasn't all the ritual about the Groundhog, but there was in Pennsylvania Dutch. It had a similar form. Songs, some food, jokes, and then usually a skit that's humorous and then oftentimes a speaker who has a message usually about the contributions of Pennsylvania Germans, the good values of Pennsylvania Germans, but phrased within a humorous context. So the fasumbling took off. And actually, I think eventually there were a lot of them, like 60 or 70. It was a real popular thing to do in this area. You had a generation of people whose children weren't speaking Pennsylvania Dutch much, but they'd been brought up on farms where Pennsylvania Dutch was oftentimes their first language. Uh, They felt a real allegiance to it. And so uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. Now, I'll be honest with you, I did most of my research for that book probably about 15 years ago, 20 years ago. There aren't many Pennsylvania Dutch speakers any longer. So you're finding fewer and fewer people coming to these meetings. The meetings are starting, some of the meetings are starting to use more English. And the Groundhog Lodges, which were pretty strict about no women, actually Lodge Number 1, which I'm on the rod or the board of, has just this year decided to allow women to come. And I suspect they're going to use more English. A couple of the lodges are using a lot of English. So you see that change going on. But anyway, the Fasumling technically were men and women together, not about the Groundhog. And the Grunsau lodges were then focused on some ritual, usually humorous, about uh, the groundhog's ability to predict the future. And those were, until very recently, men only. And as I said, everything was in Dutch. Uh, You were fined if you spoke any English. You know, it'd be, I don't know, back in the 1930s, a nickel was a lot. A nickel, you know, then it went up and up and up. I have to say, by the time I was going to the meetings in early 2000s, there were people speaking Pennsylvania Dutch, but there were a lot of people in the audience who speak English. Oftentimes, what somebody would do is put five or ten dollars in a pot and then speak English. But the ceremonies, the people who were actually running the festival, the skits, the talks, there's a forbidden eye where you put up your paws as a groundhog and swear allegiance to the groundhog for you. Uh, Those were all in Pennsylvania Dutch. You covered a lot of things I I was going to ask about, actually. I I was going, I noticed that I think your book came out in 2016. And towards the end, you were mentioning what the future of these 
lodges and and the for something were and you said you know there were a few different possibilities one was they continue as is some some might continue as is where they only speak uh deutsch and some would be a mixture english and deutsch some might switch to english and some might disband entirely and i think at the time that you had written the book only one of them had disbanded. Now, I think looking at, I know there's like an official Groundhog Lodge website, which seems to list all the meetings or all the different groups. And it looks like a number of them, number more have disbanded since that point. Do you know how many are active right now? I'm sorry, I don't. My guess is it would be, you know, they're trying to hang on. So my guess is, I, I think there's still about 10 or 12. Now, the first one to disband was actually the one down at Temple University in uh, Philadelphia. And that probably disbanded sometime in the mid 70s. You know, there just weren't any those professors who came from this area. They're just, you know, they had all retired and maybe passed away. And you just didn't have any Dutch speakers in North Philadelphia. But since then, yeah, there have been, you know, some closings and a fair number uh, were using English. Now, I wrote that book, I think, you know, might have been Temple was the only one that had actually folded and people were still hanging on to Deutsch as the main language. But since then, a a couple of the lodges have started using a lot more English. And there's talk, if you want to keep on going, you're going to have to use English. Same thing with the Fasumlings, the men and women groups. Uh, The most active one is the Berks County one. I think when I wrote that book, or at least when I was doing research, when I wrote that book, probably five or 600 people came out to it. It's in Leesport, which is in central Berks County. I think uh, last I heard they're down to three. 350. And I know a lot of the assemblings, the groups with men and women, a lot of them have uh, folded. I just want uh, your audience to know one thing. It's really confusing who the Pennsylvania Germans actually are. The Pennsylvania Germans and Pennsylvania Dutch are the same group of people. Though, believe it or not, they fight about (laughs) a better term. And the people we're talking about, if you talk to tourists, if this podcast goes outside of the close region here, people think of the Pennsylvania Dutch or the Pennsylvania Germans as old order Amish. Uh, But these are not old order Amish. The overwhelming majority of people who are Pennsylvania German or Pennsylvania Dutch or Lutheran and German Reformed. German Reformed Church is now United Church of Christ. They're liberal. They they would fight in wars. They would use machinery. They would adopt a new technology. They did not stand out, but they kept that Dutch language. And that's what's unusual as an ethnic group. They came here mainly probably, you know, some people, 1683 is the first date, but they started coming, you know, maybe 1710, 1720. And the big migrations of that group would have been over by about 1800. But they kept that language right up until the middle of the 20th century. You would still, you know, if you came to Kutztown University, you know, back then it was Kutztown State Normal School, if you came there in the 30s or 40s, you would have heard Dutch everywhere in this area. And I still um, meet people who uh, learned English in schools, uh, born in the 1920s or 30s, and they knew only Dutch. Today, that's not the case in this area. The children, grandchildren of the people that founded the lodges, almost all, not a few of them are speaking Dutch, but a uh, Dutch, I should say, uh, but almost all speaking English. So that was a long-term change. But these people are always, if you want, uh, sometimes they're called fancy Dutch. Uh, some people don't like that, or fancy Pennsylvania Germans. Uh, sometimes uh, they're called the gay Dutch or gay Pennsylvania Germans. Church people is probably the preferred term because that refers to the fact that they were part of the Lutheran Church or the German Reformed Church. And they made up actually about 95% of the Dutch speakers, say 1900, maybe even until 1930 or 1940. But they stop speaking it. And the old order Amish do keep it. So we have some old order Mennonites in this area who also, they go around in horse and buggies and they do keep the Pennsylvania Dutch line. Okay. And that's also part of why originally, or for, for most of their history, the Fursumling and the Groundhog Lodges had that rule, right? About only speaking Deutsch kind of a way to preserve that heritage and continue that tradition. Yeah. I think I talked about this in the book. It struck me that a lot of the people that founded it were brought up on farms in the late 1800s. And I think, you know, it became a kind of nostalgic, they, you know, remembering their parents and their grandparents, they would have lived in an environment environment where they spoke English. English was largely being spoken all around them. They would have spoken Dutch at churches and, you know, when they got together with their friends and family. But their children were going to be the first generation that probably were not going to be speaking Pennsylvania Dutch much in Dutch. They were going to be speaking English. And I think they saw it as an opportunity to come together and connect with what they saw as their roots and the language, which was very important to them. Could you maybe give a little bit of your background of how you became interested in 
all of this. I know you, you touch on it in the book, but when did you first start going to these meetings, attending them like regularly? Uh, when I started, well, I mean, we can go back. I do have some Pennsylvania German heritage, but growing up in the 1950s in the suburbs of Philadelphia, it was not cool to be German because there had been a war against them. And I didn't know Pennsylvania Dutch and Pennsylvania Germans are really different from other German Americans, and they don't always get along with the other German Americans. But at, to me, it didn't, you know, I didn't know. And I thought maybe, you know, my mother talked about her ancestors. I thought she was talking about Amish or something, a little Amish. So I had no idea who these people were. I started teaching at Kutzan University in 1988. And I was, you know, in a Pennsylvania German area. And one of the things that professors do, if you want to find out about a group of people, you decide you're going to teach a course about them. And so I started learning more about who the Pennsylvania Germans really were. My mother was really into it, but I was, to be honest, I was not. And we were just starting a Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center here because we are really in the heart of Pennsylvania German land. One of the things I learned is Kutztown University was actually founded by Pennsylvania Germans. And in the old normal school system, about every three counties, you had a state teacher's college to train teachers. The one at Kutztown was really for Pennsylvania Germans. It was pork barrel politics of the 1860s and 1870s. State legislature wanted to get the Pennsylvania Germans behind the educational system. And they said, okay, we'll give them their normal school and they can train their teachers to go out into their area. So our university had roots in the Pennsylvania German region. And there were some, I guess, endowments, some grants that were received. One of them was this Freiburger professorship that I have. But there was an old farmhouse in the area and it had been used by Pennsylvania German families, and the university took it over. And so we formed a Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center. We had a very good director, a guy named David Valeska. He was a historian, and he was the first director. And I was interested in Pennsylvania Germans. I came to talk to him. He had very good contacts, and he sent me to my first Groundhog Lodge meeting. It was, I think, about 2001, 2002, somewhere in there. And, you know, I was absolutely enthralled. You know, I'd always thought of Pennsylvania Germans as kind of stodgy, I don't know, serious, you know, and here were people laughing and joking and having fun and doing all sorts of things. And so I thought it was really interesting. And it turned out the lodge members were concerned. Uh, they realized uh, there were fewer and fewer people who spoke the language. Now, when I started, uh, there were probably six or 700 people at the lodge meeting that I went to. Now, like last year, we were under 100 in that lodge. But anyway, when I started, there were a lot of people, but they wanted to do a history. They wanted to somehow record what they had accomplished. And so, you know, I'm the point headed academic. And I thought, boy, this is a great opportunity to learn about them. So I said, okay, you know, I'll, you know, I'd be interested in talking to you, uh, recording your stories and writing a history. And that was just sheer, I don't know, serendipity, luck. Yeah. And so that's how it started uh, early 2000s. And then, yeah, it took a while for that book to come out. It took a couple sabbaticals. There was one, I think, in 2004, and there was another one in 2012. And then uh, it takes a while to get a book published. You have to go through all sorts, and you have to revise it and revise it, and then you send it off to publishers. So that one came out in 2016. So what's your understanding of Pennsylvania Dutch or Deitch? Do you have a good understanding or? It's, I'm not I'm not a good speaker. I do understand some. I can read some. You know, I can joke around a little bit, but I would not say that uh, fluent. I, uh, in writing that book, I really relied on the Dutch speakers themselves. Some of the things they wrote, and then I could translate and uh, make sure I got the translation right. But I was largely and still largely relying on Dutch speakers. So that was something I was curious about was if I did go to a Groundhog Lodge meeting, would I be able to understand? Would I be able to pick up on it without the without the knowledge. I know you said that some of them are moving more towards English now, but is it understandable enough even without an understanding of the language? Just, you know, can you, can you pick up on it just from what they're doing? I know you said there there's skits and and uh, speeches or, or texts? I think it would depend upon, at this point, which lodge you went to. One of the things that helped me, because I was talking to the people, you know, I got an understanding of the overall structure, and oftentimes I was involved in the rod, so I knew what the skit was about. I knew the speakers, was able to work with them. I'll tell you, this story, I had two sons. One went and was absolutely bored out of his skull to one of the meetings, and he said, you know, he's sitting next to two Dutch speakers, and oftentimes people get there, if they speak Dutch, they want to keep speaking Dutch because it's so hard 
hard to find other Dutch speakers. And so the other one went and said he had a great time. So I can't predict, you know, if you're really interested in going, I can try to find one I know or two that are using a lot of English. But I do know, you know, there there is a sense that people who do not speak Dutch, Deutsch, are, are going to have, they're going to have some trouble. But it is a very visual event. You know, there's, they bring in a groundhog and there's this Verbenerai where everybody's standing up and there's skits. So I think, you know, you won't be totally lost in it, but it really depends, I think, upon which lodge you're going to. And do you have any familiarity with German? Standard high German? I do not. I took Spanish in high school, and that's okay. <laughs> uh, that's the extent of my other language knowledge. Yeah. So, where do you live? I live in New Jersey, so I'm not I'm not too far from most of these places. Yeah. And as we were talking about a, a little while ago, I did go to see before we started recording. I did go to see Uni the Groundhog, and that whole ceremony is pretty much in Pennsylvania Dutch, so you can kind of get a an idea of what's going on. But yeah, well, that's you know that would probably be. I think they do pledge of allegiance in Pennsylvania Dutch, and they do you know some standard. They'll sing you know my country Tisithi in Pennsylvania Dutch, so there will be uh, some relationships. Does every Groundhog Lodge have a weather predicting portion? Is that something that happens at the actual meeting or is that a separate event? Like I know as a, you know, the one you need, that's like a separate thing that happens on Groundhog Day early in the morning. And I know in in your book, you also mentioned, I think it was Groundhog Lodge 16, seems to have a very similar event where they also put the Groundhog. I think that is Groundhog Lodge 16 that you were at. Maybe, unless you were at the Union Canal, they do something too. That's a little bit further west in uh, Lebanon County. But yeah, 16 has, uh, carries, I can't think of the, it's a creek, I'll think of it. I think think you said it was Jordan Creek. And the one that I went to was... A different one. It was that was probably uh, the now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Usually the weather prediction is made at the actual meeting, and what they do is you know either pretend or you know when I was there by the time I think fairly recently once you got the telephone, <laughs> which would have been you know pretty early in the thirties, somebody would be supposedly calling in the weather report and would be saying, okay, this is what the groundhog's doing, but it was it was all made up. Well, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. But yeah, it was mostly made up. And so usually um, there's uh, some event at the Groundhog Lodge meeting itself when somebody calls in and talks about what the groundhog is doing and claims that he's about to make the prediction of how long, much longer winter is going to last. But the lodges I know about, the prediction is actually made at the lodge itself. And sometimes you have somebody calling in on a telephone. They're probably just in the back room on a speaker, but they're supposedly they're calling in on a telephone and telling what the groundhog's uh, actions are. There's some rivalry on this. You know, they think the Punxsutawney person is a phony and a fake, and they say theirs is the real groundhog. And that uh, you only get a real prediction if it's in Pennsylvania Dutch, Dutch that uh, the English-speaking groundhogs never get it right. I yeah, I know that. I know that from the Punxsutawney end, they always say that anybody else is a pretender. So that does seem to be kind of a tradition, maybe amongst all of the different groundhogs. And what you were saying about you know it was all fake. Uh, or pretend I was I've been trying to figure out at what point Punxsutawney even started having a real groundhog because I'm I'm imagining that early on it was probably a similar situation where there might not have actually been a groundhog I know they you know claim it's same groundhog 137 years or whatever but you know I've been uh trying to figure it out I wonder when they actually started doing their tradition like how it is right now you know the uh well i talk about this in book but the idea that a hibernating animal actually came from europe and i think they had bears and badgers you know you'd look on february 2nd to see if they saw their shadow or not uh, to be able to predict the future and then that was brought over here and it's pretty clear you know in the late 17 early 1800s you do get newspaper accounts now when pucks and tawny started i don't know and when they started bringing in you know uh, the groundhog i think they keep her they keep her in a library in Punxsutawney or something. Yeah. 
you know, they've, they've developed and, you know, that would be somebody else's book, I guess. Uh, they've developed into a huge media event, that movie about them. And I think even that word Groundhog Day has become a meme in our culture for people who are kind of somehow trapped in a circular kind of event and keep doing the same thing after the movie. So they really have a big media blitz going there. When, you know, how that evolved, I don't know. There's a book by a very great, really the leading scholar of Pennsylvania German studies during his lifetime, Don Yoder. And it's called, um, you know, Groundhog Day. Is it called Ground, the Groundhog Groundhog Day or something like that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's just called Groundhog Day. And I, I did read that one a few years ago. And I know his name comes up a lot. And I, I you mentioned it a few times in your book. Is he someone that you met or had any? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yoder was a, yeah, no, he was a really top scholar of uh, Pennsylvania German studies. And, pe- you know, people know Pennsylvania German studies recognize him. I, you know, I don't remember in the book what he says, but if anybody had anything to say about Punxsutawney Phil, you know, Don's book would probably have uh, something. But I don't know that there's really been a comprehensive study about uh, Punxsutawney Phil. That could be another PhD dissertation for another student. It's something someone had mentioned it to me. I just always assumed there was an actual live groundhog. And then someone had said they didn't actually start until maybe the 60s or 70s. And I've gone through old newspapers and they mentioned they mentioned it, but there's there's not necessarily pictures or anything like that. Got me wondering if it's, you know, the similar kind of myth thing. Oh, yeah, we we saw the groundhog and, you know, eventually it came to include a a live groundhog in this huge ceremony. So interview the the, uh, the, I don't know what they call them, the lodge keeper. And they have some fancy name for them, but get a do a podcast with uh, some of the people from Punxsutawney, see what they say. That's a good idea. I wonder how much they have to stick to their official lore yeah. at this at this point. Yeah. So I was curious, how many lodges would you say you have attended? The different how many meetings lodges? or how many different lodges? So different lodges and meetings. You said you're normally at number one, right? You said that's in Allentown. Uh, it was in Allentown. They moved. They've been moving all around. Actually, they were in a little town called Germansville, and where are they going to be this year? They're not going to be in Allentown. They're going to be a kind of nearby Northampton when I first started going they were actually in this town Northampton which is where they had the very first meeting so they've been moving around I would say I've probably been to four or five different lodge meetings and I've probably been to I don't know 20 30 actual groundhog lodge meetings I think most of my data really comes from talking to the people that organized the lodge meetings ran the lodge meetings being on the rod the board of the biggest lodge and then talking to the speakers and the people that wrote the skits and plays. So most of my, you know, a lot of my information comes from being there, but I would say the bulk of my information actually came from interviewing different people who were involved in the lodge. And I don't know, in my book, I think, you know, maybe I refer to 20 or 30 people. Do any of them have like permanent, like when, when I hear the word lodge, I guess I, I think more of a, of a structure but I guess it really refers to the organization, right? Like, do any of them have permanent homes or is it something that pretty much moves around, depends on, you know, where where they can, different halls, something like that? Yeah, no, it's far. No, I think somebody was telling me for a while, at least one up in Schoolkill County, actually, like the Punxsutawney, they did have a library or something and they were, they actually tried to keep a, you know, a groundhog. So there may be a couple of, cases like that. But ordinary, the the word lodge just is refers to a group of people who come together. And oftentimes, you know, the ones I know, they come together in somebody's house to prepare the meetings. Actually, it's a lot of work organizing the meetings. They'll just meet in somebody's house or maybe a restaurant. And then usually they'll meet in a fire hall or a club or some other place. They, as far as I know, none of them, I'm pretty sure none of them actually have a permanent place. That word lodge is just uh, really refers to a group of people who come together. One of the problems, I don't know, you know, if your listeners know about this, but since COVID and maybe even a little bit before, it is getting harder and harder to find places where you can actually have a dinner. It used to be fire companies did this kind of thing. Sometimes, you know, it could uh, actually think we're going to one of the Masonic halls. There would be different organizations, but, you know, 
church groups sometimes, but it's getting harder and harder to find people who really want to cater a dinner and it's getting more and more expensive. So this is uh, becoming more and more difficult. Most of the lodges I know about, I think all of them actually, I know something about all of them, they've moved around. Usually they're one place for maybe five or 10 years and then who knows, something happens and they move to another place, another location, another fire hall or another you know, a facility. Number one, the problem is the first Groundhog Lodge, it was in Northampton, then it moved to Allentown for a lot of number of years, then back to Northampton. But it really, the other lodges tended to be associated with places. Number one was kind of just the big old lodge that was kind of sponsoring everybody. And so that's one of their challenges. They don't really locate, you know, they're not really oriented to a specific location. Uh, So the last 20 years since I've been involved, they moved around a lot. When I started, there was Northampton. As I said, it was Germansville. And oh, what's this town up by where Eltrice, Lehigh County Community College, and Schwenksville. So, and then some other places as well. So they've actually moved around an awful lot. So is Lodge Number 1, is that also the Grandfather Lodge or is that a separate thing. Yeah, that's separate. What happened now, uh, this would have been, I think, probably the 19, I talk about in the book, you get the date there, I think 1970s or so. You got leaders going, and the lodges were still going strong then. What you have to do is kind of to figure out how strong they are, go back 60 years, look at uh, were the people born in that age group, uh, were they likely to have been speaking Dutch? In front, a lot of the lodges were set up, and I think in the 50s and 60s, and that reflected just the older, this people who were speaking, turning 50 and 60 and wanting to uh, found a lodge where they could speak the language that they remember maybe their first language speaking were speaking growing up. The Grosdotty Lodge was formed, I think, about 1970, late 70s, uh, 1980. And what they wanted to do was coordinate all the lodges because they had all these lodges going on and they felt there should be some effort to bring them all together, give each other the dates when they were going to have their meetings. Oftentimes people go to three or four or five different lodges to hear the different uh, things going on. And so Grosstadty, grandfather or big lodge, that was formed to have the hopman, the leader of each one of the, at that time there were 17 lodges, the one in Temple at Bolden. Uh, each one of the lodges come together and talk about their mutual interests, their mutual concerns, and then also the dates when they would hold their meeting, because you didn't want two lodges to hold the meetings on the same day because people would want to go between these different lodges. They also did things for Pennsylvania German culture. There's a Pennsylvania German flag, and that was really kind of inspired by the Gross study lodge coming together and saying, okay, you know, other ethnic groups have a flag. We need a Pennsylvania Dutch flag. They started sponsoring language classes so people could, you know, learn a little bit Pennsylvania Dutch, get a chance to speak it, and maybe, you know, the grandchildren of the lodge members could learn it a little bit. So it was the main organization that kind of formed things. They actually, at the folk festival, I started in the folk festival, I think, in what was it, 1996 or so. They were really the main group that represented Pennsylvania German activities at the folk festival. There were the people we'd go to and say, okay, we want to have a Dutch speaker. Okay, we want to have this kind of event. We want to have that kind of event. So they were kind of the main, at least to me, one of the main organizations kind of perpetuating Pennsylvania German interests, the Pennsylvania German language, Pennsylvania German culture. They were overseeing the Groundhog Lodges, but they were doing some other things as well. The last meeting I was at, I didn't count my Grosstadi Lodges I've been to. I was at a meeting, I think it was in September, the last one they had, and a big issue being discussed there, and mostly in English, was how much English should we use? And people were getting up saying, you know, our lodge, uh, there was nobody in the lodge. Uh, it was really falling apart. And we started using English and now we're getting all sorts of people. We want children in and, you know, they're not going to do well if you're speaking in Dutch. But if you speak in English, we can bring kids in. And so there was a discussion. Let's, you know, people arguing, let's use more English and how will we preserve the traditions that the lodges have started. So that was the topic at that meeting. Now, that was the first meeting where I heard that particular subject being talked about a lot. I suspect, sorry, old timers, I hope you're sitting, one of the discussions coming up next will be women at the lodge meetings. And that seems to be something that's becoming more and more accepted. As I said, this is the first year lodge number one, the oldest one, is actually in their invitations going to mention the fact that uh, women are invited uh, to come. And actually the rod, we just have Sarah Edris. Uh, she, we have a woman on the rod, the board, which is uh, really unusual. So uh, that's something that would be discussed by the Grosstadi Lodges uh, when they come together. So it's really an organization that perpetuates Pennsylvania German interests and also 
overseas groundhog lodges. So you mentioned this is the first year that lodge number one is going to have women involved. I know in the book, you mentioned that there was at least one lodge that was women only. Oh, yeah. Is that one of the, would you say, 17 or 18 lodges or is that separate that's from that separate. count? That's separate. Yeah. That lodge, it's interesting. It's in an area that really, you know, there's some regions where you just get a lot of, I don't know, ethnic vitality, interest, things like that. Pitt sounds kind of that maybe because the university, because it's between Allentown and Reading, which are two kind of duchy areas, but it's, you know, not urban. It's still somewhat rural. Wilmersdorf, if, uh, you know, that area. And so this area, it had a really active lodge. I think it's lodge number seven. And this woman, Lucy Kern, just felt there should be a time when women, especially widowers, this is, you know, what she explained to me. Actually, I spoke at that lodge. I've forgotten to count that lodge in the ones up in that. She felt older women are single and they need a time to get together and enjoy things. Here's some Pennsylvania Dutch. They were not as strict about speaking Pennsylvania Dutch. I have to say it was kind of where everybody brings their own food. You got some of the best food I ever had at this lodge because these old women were really good cooks. Anyway, potluck. Um, Pennsylvania Dutch. And, um, you know, they oftentimes you would have people from the Groundhog Lodges help cater and, you know, do things there. I spoke there at one point, you'd have men speaking there. It wasn't really a, you know, feminist movement or anything, but it was centered around women and doing something for women. And I think it was kind of a, you know, humorous, okay, the men have their thing, we're going to have our thing. But yeah, there is that lodge. Now, COVID took it out. I think somebody else was is running it. I'm not sure if they're going to, I heard they were going to go again this year. And it's an area, just in that area, they have lodge number seven, which was very active. And I think, you know, just the women were into it. And I think Lucy Kern's retired, but they're, what I heard was they're still planning on continuing it. So it at least has existed recently, if it doesn't exist yeah. now or isn't continuing. I, think on. Okay. Still, I was, I was curious if that was just like a kind of a short term thing that existed for a little while, but it's good to yeah, know. I'll have to check my on. book, but I think it's been around at least 20 years longer okay. maybe. I think I, I spoke there I think 15 years ago and had been around for 10 years. Before. I almost want to say you maybe said in the 70s, but uh, I might be... Maybe the set, that might be. I might be uh, confusing things. So yeah. none of the other lodges had involved women in the Groundhog Lodges before this point? Yeah, no, well, there was some... What they would occasionally in the skits, there was some, you know, differences. So sometimes you'd have men that would dress as women to perform women roles. Uh, sometimes they would get you know, the wives I think I mentioned there was a demonstration. I think this was during the women's movement, about 72 or 73. And a group of women came and, you know, they started picketing and demonstrating that women should be included. I think there's a picture of that in my book. But that was actually set up. Those were the wives of the Rod members. And they had agreed that, well, they're going to come and, you know, kind of make a playoff on the women's movement, which was becoming active and why uh, weren't women included in the Groundhog Lodges. So you did have some women involved. If I was at a couple of lodge meetings, they had women playing the roles of women in the skits. There were other times when they had men who were dressed up as women and uh, playing those roles. You did have occasionally women, but actually in the audience, no. Now there's a famous story, I think I mentioned it, the Allentown Morning Call supposedly had one of their reporters dress up as a man and attended the meeting. And I think that would have been about 1970, 75, something like that. Apparently she passed and then she wrote about it. And then it was kind of, I think, done in good humor. As far as I know, that's the only woman who came actually as a spectator and she was coming in as a man. But, you know, I remember about... I don't know, four or five years ago, there was a reporter, a woman who wanted to do a story about the Groundhog Lodges. And she asked if she could come. And I asked the Rod members, I said, yeah, sure, she can come. Now, she didn't come in the end because she was too busy or too far away or something. But, you know, they were loose. Things were getting loose. And then last year, there was a woman at the Heritage Center who really helped them out a lot, Sarah Edris. And they were really grateful that she helped them get there. They have this, you know, eight-foot groundhog. They have to get out of the Heritage Center and to wherever they're going. Uh, they said, okay, you know, we want you to be involved with us. And so now she's on the rod. And they talked about, you know, I said, you know, when I first went there 20 years ago, 25 years ago, they had about 600, 700 people in their hall. They were down to under 100, I think, last year. And they're hoping include women and they're hoping that'll bring the numbers up. You mentioned that eight foot groundhog. I know you mentioned that in the book. That was kind of what was 
I had that question about, is there like a physical lodge that is kind of the home for everything? So I was kind of curious as to where that eight foot groundhog lives during the rest of the year. So you said it, it lives in the cultural center and they have to... Heritage Center has a barn and they kept it there. Now, before it was there, I think it was just, you know, these were farmers. They usually had big buildings, barns and things like that. There's a lot of other ceremonial things. There's smaller groundhogs that they bring in and there's plaques they put on the walls. And those, I think, would be kept at uh, the house of one of the members. A big groundhog assumed that was, I don't know where it was before the Heritage Center, but I think it was in somebody's barn or, you know, uh, or storage area. It right. wasn't designated as anything special, just that's where the stuff is being stored. Gotcha. And then the Heritage Center, we got pretty heavily involved once it was established here at Kutztown, I think about 1990. A lot of the lodge members were active in starting our Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center. And over time, by 2000, a lot of the stuff had been moved over to the Heritage Center for storage. You mentioned in the book that most of the members were in their 70s, 80s, 90s. Do you see any sort of new membership, like younger membership at this point? I know there you're saying there was talk about, you know, maybe switching to English to maybe be able to bring in children. But at this point, is it pretty much just what you have at dwindling? Or do you think that there are occasionally new people coming in? I, I guess they would have to be probably be children or grandchildren of the original members or, or the current members maybe who've yeah there are a few younger people in their 20s 30s 40s who learn pennsylvania dutch in a variety of ways usually almost always as a second language a few people who would have been brought up you know a farm uh they're not many like that you know sometimes people talk about different things you might be able to get all of those people together to have one lodge meeting i know i'm saying another 10 or 20 years when a lot of the older uh, speakers pass away so there you know there probably would be enough interest and enough fluent speakers to keep something going i guess what i think is going to happen is still what i said in the book it's only what eight years now seven years actually writing that book was probably because it takes a while from the book to get written to published i would say you know i was writing about a time 10 years ago or so i think you know still it's going Going to be different routes. Uh, there's going to be some lodges, I think, which are going to switch over to a lot of English, but also use some Pennsylvania Dutch in context. And I think some lodges are going to fold or join together with other lodges. And I think, you know, there may be a few that just keep Pennsylvania Dutch, that get enough people coming out that they could keep going in Pennsylvania Dutch. Now, as far as I know, lodge number one, first one, still plans to be primarily in Pennsylvania Dutch. And if they pick up women speakers who speak Pennsylvania Dutch, you know, that might give them a critical mass for some of these to keep on going in Pennsylvania Dutch. As I said, a couple of them seem to be switching them more over uh, towards English. So I guess, you know, I wrote about this 20 years ago. I'm not sure there's one future for Pennsylvania Germans. I talk about futures. There's different ways of doing things. And so, you know, there may be some that are almost all Dutch. There may be some that are almost all English. And there may be some that are in between. One thing, there's another scholar, Mark Loudon, who's written, I think I cited in there, a book about the Pennsylvania Dutch language. He talks about the people who spoke Yiddish and the Hasidic Jews in New York and other places in New Jersey. They use the Yiddish the way in which uh, old order groups use Deutsch. They use it as an identity marker. They preserve it. Now, I'm told actually younger Yiddish speakers in that committee, the Hasidic community speak it better than older people because there's just such, you know, the older people didn't learn it. They learned it as a second language. The younger people learned it as their first language. And then you get most American Jews who speak English. Now, their grandparents spoke Yiddish, but they don't speak it anymore. And Loudon talked to some Yiddish scholars and said, well, they're post vernacular They'll use different phrases from Yiddish, this is the more liberal group who don't use it primarily as a source of identity. They'll use different phrases to express their identity as Jewish or Yiddish, uh, but they can't really speak Yiddish fluently. And that might be, you know, he thinks that might be where a lot of Pennsylvania Germans are going, that, you know, there's some of those words you were talking about, Grunzau or Sumling. I don't know. In this area, you sometimes hear the word rutsch. You hear it a lot. People that don't speak any Pennsylvania Dutch will use this word rutsch. It kind of means move around a lot. I talk to people, Gretzi, I was brought up in this, my kids were brought up in this area, I moved in this area, and if somebody's cranky or kind of angry or something, use the word Gretzi, there's the word Shiverlick. There's a bunch of terms that come here once that are regionalisms that, let's say, it's, you know, bumpy, that people use in this area, and they become identity markers. And he's arguing that, you know, these uh, will be preserved in the future. 
he calls this post vernacular. And that might be, you know, there might be Groundhog Lodge meetings where they use a lot of these common widespread Dutch terms, but they're also using a lot of English as well. So, you know, that would be what do I have four kinds here? One all Pennsylvania German, one all English, one mixed, one which would be Pennsylvania English, but with a lot of Dutchisms that are uh, used in this area by people who speak English. So, you know, that might be one of the possible futures. It'll be interesting to continue. Yeah watching. And... Well, you're younger. I don't know if I'll be around to see the end, but do an interview in about 30 years and see whoever's... There's a guy, Patrick Dunmoyer, at our Heritage Center who learned Pennsylvania Dutch. He'll be around in 30 years. And I'm sure he'll know what's going on. So interview him and see where we are. Okay. Yeah. That's in 30 years. I'll have, to, uh, I'll have to keep it in mind. Do you know what the original inspiration for centering around the groundhog for these Groundhog Lodges was? Was that just coming out of the other, like the Punxsutawney tradition? And I know there was the Quarryville one, which is not, that's not related at all, right? To any of these, at least as far well, as the... The, the founder, I talk about this in the book, the founder of the Groundhog Lodges was a newspaper writer for the Allentown Morning Call. His name was William Troxell, but he wrote under the moniker Pumpernickel Bill. And he wrote a dialect column. It was very common in this area up until maybe about 2000. Originally, if you went 1800, all the papers would have been in high German. By 1900, they're switching over to English, but they have a Pennsylvania Dutch column, not a high German column, but almost all the papers in this region would have had a Pennsylvania Dutch column. And Troxel was the writer for the Morning Call in Allentown, which is in Lehigh County. And he came up with the idea. Now, he did know about Quarryville and he did know about Punxsutawney. And you can see in his correspondence, he's writing to those places. But there was also a all Pennsylvania Dutch language event, a couple other places. Uh, Selensgrove is the one I'm thinking, uh, Susquehanna University at college probably back then. In 1933, they had some event that was all Pennsylvania Dutch. And I think Troxel was taken by that. He was not apparently at that meeting, but he knew about it. And I think he was singing about the Groundhog Lodge meetings in Quarryville and Punxsutawney. And he thought, let's have an a Pennsylvania German event. And he was a humorous writer. I think he saw it as partly humorous, but also partly about ethnic heritage. And so he said, you know, let's have this event. Now, the Groundhog, talked about this in the book, uh, this was, a, you know, a common, I don't know, myth or legend, or I think some people believe that if you're a farmer, you need to know what weather's going to be, or it's helped to know what weather's going to be like in, you know, six weeks. Is it going to be spring or is it going to still be winter? And, you know, we can't tell now even very well, but have no idea back then. So you'd be concerned about what future was. And these were farming people. Uh, they had this tradition that they brought with them from Europe. It seems to be in the newspapers, you know, it was often commented upon. It's hard to know if the people thought it was really serious or just a kind of, even today, you know, what kind of humorous event. But you uh, would have had, you know, notions about uh, what's happening with the groundhog in this area. And this would have been brought over by their ancestors from Europe. It would have been something the newspapers would have been commenting upon, perhaps humorously, in the 1920s. And uh, Troxel uh, knew about this. Now, I think I mentioned going further back, it turns out Groundhog Day is also Candlemas, which is a important Christian Catholic holiday where you bless the candles of the church. And it turns out, as I think, you know, do the math here, but Candlemas is six weeks after Christ was born. And I think they bless the candles because in Jewish practice, when Christ was born, you had to wait six weeks before you could take him to the synagogue. And so Mary takes Jesus to the synagogue on this day, which is known as Candlemas or Groundhog Day. And so it seems to have been, you know, had some kind of supernatural religious significance. Also, this is Don Yoder makes the point. It is right. I can never figure out whether it's equinox or solstice, but it's kind of midway between the winter and the summer, between December 22nd and March 22nd. And so Yoder thinks it might have something to do with pagan holidays, which looked at the seasonal changes. And so it's a significant day in lots of respects. And I think one of the things that Troxel was doing is, again, this is my pointy-headed academic thing, that at that time, you know, nobody really believes the groundhog. 
groundhog, but they want people to think the Pennsylvania Germans think the groundhog is there. And it's like, you know, on one hand, they're playing a joke on everybody. You know, you think we're these superstitious people. There were 13 members of the rod, but really we aren't. And in a sense, the joke's on you to think we're so stupid that we actually believe this. But on the other hand, we're going to have fun and pretend that we believe it. And so I think, you know, it was a legend that it had some resonance for people. It had some religious, as I said, significance. It was also in Pennsylvania Germans had a saying that uh, half the food should be eaten at that time. I think I forget the poem, but I have it in the book. It was very common on February 2nd to say this poem about half the food. So there's a kind of cultural significance, there's a religious significance, and then there's this kind of, to me, ironic play on, you know, what people uh, who are farmers and maybe in the past were superstitious, what they believe in a modern time. And I think one of the things, you know, Punxsutawney Phil, I think the reason why he's so popular is people want to play something in a very, you know, rational world. They want to play something which is goofy on the one hand, but also ties into a kind of superstitious folk belief that it's fun to believe for in a day, you know, kind of like some version of Halloween. That's my point ahead. You know, your listeners are free to just say, oh, you know, this is another dumb academic who's pretending that he knows something. No, I, I think that all makes sense. Okay. And I probably should finish up. If I could just say a couple things that, yeah. again, on the academic side, one of the things that strikes me about the Pennsylvania Germans in terms of their culture is they keep creating I guess, ceremonies, which over time become traditions. And the Groundhog Lodge was something which uh, it borrowed from pieces of American culture, from the Groundhog Lodge beliefs. A lot of this stuff did borrow from Sonic Lodges, Odd Fellows, the uh, fraternal organizations. And it created something new in 1934. And by 1950, 1955, it actually had become uh, something that's traditional. And one of the things that they were always able to do now, maybe they can't in this next generation, but they would create new ways to kind of express their identity. And those new ways would, over time, become something that were seen as traditional. So by the 1950s and 60s, the Groundhog Lodges, which were new, in 1930, uh, were something that were seen as traditional. The other thing I want to say is the Pennsylvania Germans are just wonderful to me. You know, I had Pennsylvania German ancestors, but I was raised in Philadelphia. I always had this image of them as being really taciturn and, you know, stodgy and things like that. They were all just really kind and nice and helpful, explained a lot of things to me, very supportive. They were just wonderful people. And, you know, one of the great things, I don't know if I talked about in this book, but one of the great things that came out of this research, you know, for whatever it's worth as research, I just got to meet a lot of really wonderful people and just grew as a person and, you know, felt really good about these people that I got to know. So one important part of it is uh, just all the great, wonderful people that I was able to meet. So that's my my summary. Great. I know you have to go soon. So I really appreciate you talking with me. I'm, I'm sure we could have gone on for, for a while longer, but thanks so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. It was fun. And um, I always like to talk about these things. So, thank, uh, you. thank you. Bye. And that's the interview. Hope you enjoyed taking a deeper look at Groundhog Lodges and learned something. I know I certainly learned a lot. If you want to find out more about Groundhog Lodges and Versamling, check out Groundhog Lodges, Versamling, and Pennsylvania German Heritage by William Donner at CountdownToGroundhogDay.com, we're maintaining a list of all of the Groundhog Day 2024 predictions. Be sure to keep an eye on it to see if long winter or early spring wins. And that's it for today, and that's it for the first season of this podcast. Don't worry, though. I have a bonus episode or two planned, and I expect season two of the podcast to premiere sometime in the fall or early winter of 2024. Thanks to everyone who's spoken to me for the podcast this season. Music for the show was written by the terrific Breakmaster Cylinder. Show artwork is by Tom Mike Hill. Transcripts are provided by Abilene Malik at thewordery.com. If you want to learn more about Groundhog Day, visit countdown to groundhogday.com. Any feedback or voice messages can be sent to podcast at countdown to groundhogday.com. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.